All right. So, hi everyone and welcome to the first episode of Talking Health with Dr. T. Right here on Radio Western Port. I'm Dr. Tohid Hajizadeh and I'm thrilled to be your host as we explore and answer your health-related queries. Today we have some fantastic questions from members of the Western Port community. Yeah, thanks for them. Uh, let's just dive right in. Alright, so our first question comes from David, aged 75, who asks, which vaccinations are recommended for me based on my age and health status? Yeah, that's actually a very good question. Uh, as we know, vaccinations are essential for our health and you know, preventing diseases. Uh, and as again, all of us know, it doesn't mean that uh, if you get vaccinated against some particular you know, bugs, viruses or bacteria, uh, it doesn't mean that you are not going to get them. It actually means that uh, probably we are trying to decrease the chance of getting them in the future. And in case if we get them, that will not be that severe or that serious that you end up in hospital, in particular with the, uh, in, with, within this age group. Uh, so for 75 plus, uh, there are a couple of vaccines we usually recommend. Of course, one of them, everyone knows, that's the COVID viruses. Currently, with the recent guidelines, if you haven't had COVID within past six months, and if you haven't had COVID jabs within the past six months, then you qualify to get new booster for that, which, yep, that is something uh, you should consider. And the other one is a vaccine which uh, is for your lung health. That is the pneumococcal vaccine. Uh that's a five-yearly sort of vaccine, and that is uh, a part of uh, bacteries which are uh, responsible for serious chest infections. Uh, these vaccines are particularly recommended to people with underlying lung disease, like uh, people with asthma and COPD. Uh, but again, everyone above 65, they are still eligible for this vaccine under uh, Medicare rebates. And... The other one is, of course, the flu shots. The best time for that will be in spring. Uh, remember, to, we need to allow about uh, two to three months for the flu shot before the peak of that, which is usually around, uh, uh, what's that, June, July to September. And the other one will be the shingles vaccine. Uh, our current vaccination uh, regimen for shingles as per the Australian uh, immunize, uh, immunization registry is basically the Shingrix vaccine, which uh, it was private until November this year, and now it is, again, uh, rebatable. It used to cost about $500 uh, for the vaccination, which fortunately it is now rebatable and it is for free for the eligible population. So that's the good news. And uh, the other one is uh, kind of the whole life sort of vaccine, which is the tetanus. Everyone needs uh, to keep their tetanus status up to date, given that uh, in Australia and in particular in Western Port area, we have lots of farmers, gardeners and all of that. There is always a chance of, you know, uh, rusty nail injury, cutting your hand, cutting your finger, I don't know, 
legs and all of that, which having a tetanus shot up to updated, that will be very helpful. So uh, I guess uh, that's it uh, for the you know vaccinations basically. Uh, yep, and let's move on to Jody, aged 24, who wants to discuss birth control methods. Uh, this is also a very good question, uh, but it doesn't have a simple answer. And the answer comes in a you know, very uh, broad way uh, to discuss about. In terms of birth control, uh, the methods are different. We used to have the conventional sort of uh, birth control methods, which you check the temperature of your body uh, on a daily basis. And when there is a small uh, hike in your temperature, it means that uh, you are sort of ovulating. And that's the time that you need to uh, basically uh, not to have sex and uh, or use some particular sort of barriers to prevent from falling pregnant. Uh, the other one is basically checking the thickness of the uh, vaginal mucosa, which uh, with that you can also uh, determine when is your ovulating time, uh, given that thickness increases while you are ovulating, and then you can uh, basically abstain on that time. And the other one is uh, the pills methods which basically you start to uh, use some medications. Now, these medications can be different in, uh, you know, their form and their, uh, the way that they work. It can be estrogen only, it can be progesterone only, it can be a mixture of them. And then basically based on your uh, past medical histories, family history, underlying condition, your age, uh, the goals that you want to arrive, you want to reach, uh, then you we choose the best possible one for you, and then you go with that. And on top of them, there there are some sort of uh, newer sort of medications. They are not that new, but you know they the the way that they work is a bit more. Uh, 21st century method, let's say, uh, which they uh, come with uh, injectables, which they are three-monthly injectable medications. Uh, there are uh, another form which uh, there is another form which it comes with as an implant, which uh, a qualified basically doctor it uh, basically puts just underneath your skin, which you can feed it, and that works for about three years, which is awesome. And the other one is basically into a uterus sort of uh, devices. They come in two different uh, forms. One is the, which one is called as Mirena, which it also releases some sort of hormone inside the uterus. And the other one is copper, basically the metal copper that we know. Uh, is there and it causes inflammation over there and doesn't uh, and prevent from falling pregnant anyways. Uh, so in a nutshell, the, these were the uh, options that we have. So that is conventional, medications, injectables, implants, and intrauterous devices that we have, which based on 
uh, our underlying conditions uh, and the health conditions and all of that, uh, we choose one of them and just go with them. Having in mind that all of them, they have their own sort of side effect profiles, including tummy pain, nausea, vomiting, uh, irregular bleeding, breakthrough bleeding, and all of that. Usually they, uh, you know, go away after a couple of days, a couple of months in some cases. But the main and most important thing is to stick to a doctor, uh, have regular reviews with them and have trust uh, to the, you know, to the process and to the doctor, which eventually will lead us to reach to the satisfactory sort of goal and aim that we have, which is preventing from pregnancy. Sometimes uh, we need to switch from one medication to the other one. It is just uh, same as some someone likes coca and the other one wants another brand of that. So uh, exactly that's the same. Something agrees to you, the other one doesn't agree. Uh, so we, you just that's the kind of journey that you need to you know uh, go with the doctor to see that which one best is suitable for you. I hope uh, that was helpful. So, yep, next up is Brett. He is uh, 45 and is concerned about aging. I guess that's everyone's concern. But uh, he asks that as I age, what screenings or health checks uh, should I prioritize to maintain overall well-being, especially regarding prostate health? Yep, so aged 45, prostate health, uh, our, our first impression would be that, yep, don't worry about prostate. Uh, if you are 45 and only worry about prostate if you have some family history of prostate cancer, uh, I guess that's just a one-line uh, sort of quote over this, uh, which we can, you know, usually use. Uh, I, I do get lots of patients who are uh, concerned about prostate health, who are uh, basically, uh, who have heard something about prostate, prostate cancer, and all of that, and they just want to check their uh, prostate uh, antigen, which is called as PSA. That's a blood test that uh, we perform on particular cases. Uh, we need to remember that PSA is a short form of prostate-specific antigen. That is not prostate cancer antigen which means with normal PSA, one may have cancer. With high PSA, one may not have cancer. So it is usually important to uh, for follow-up of a person who had prostate cancer. And in particular with some people who they do have some family history of prostate cancer, on these people we check the prostate considering their symptoms and uh, then we reach to a conclusion with that. Let's talk about what are the symptoms. So symptoms are basically categorized in two forms. One are the irritable or irritative symptoms, and the other one is obstructive symptoms. So obstructive symptoms are basically weak flow. Uh, you know, one would say, like, when I used to, you know, uh, urinate or, you know, we, I used to hit two meters in front of me, but now it is just 20 centimeters in front of me. So that's the change and 
that's a considerable change. Some may uh, basically report some hesitancy, which they say that, look, when I want to wait, I need to wait for a couple of minutes to start. Dribbling, which is basically some drops which uh, you have after you uh, wee. And another important symptom is, not important, common, all of them are important. Uh, a common symptom is uh, incomplete evacuating of your bladder, which means that uh, you go to toilet and you still, after you know doing the job, you still feel that, oh, yep, I need to go there after five minutes, which means that you haven't completely emptied your bladder. Uh, these are the mainly obstructive symptoms. Irrit irritative symptoms are basically frequency going to toilet more often, some pain, sting, uh, which can contribute uh, with the prostate issues. However, having said that, uh, there are some other conditions which can uh, sort of present with same symptoms. What are the symptoms like? Urinary tract infections, they can cause, you know, frequency, pain, sting, changing color, changing odor of the urine. And the other one can be, you know, stones in your bladder, in your kidney, or the tubes which are connecting the kidneys uh, to the bladder. And they can, in some extent, also show some symptoms, uh, similar symptoms to the prostate issues. So this was prostate in a nutshell. Now, regarding what are the screenings and or health checks which we should prioritize, always heart check and diabetes and kidney health are the main things which we usually consider. And these are the checks that we usually go with uh, blood tests and some further investigations like ECG, which is the trace of your heart or ultrasound of your kidneys or something like that, which is a second line, basically, not the first line. However, having said all of these, all the blood tests, all these investigations, they come second or even third line to the first line. Now, what is the first line? First line is your own habit, you know, daily habit. What you eat, what you drink, what you do during the day, what is your stress level, uh, what is your exercise level, if you eat lots of wedges, you know, variety of fresh fruits, uh, veggies, and uh, fish, and the supplements that you take. So all of these, and of course, your family history also, you know, plays a big role over here as well. Uh, so if we can consider all of this, and then put some order, some blood test next to it, then we can basically reach to a uh, kind of conclusion that what is the next best step. Now, when we discuss about diabetes, uh, obviously the sedentary lifestyle and family history, being overweight, uh, lack of exercise in life, these are the main things uh, which can contribute with diabetes which is a big health issue in our community. Uh, I really want to discuss here, with, uh, discuss here about exercise. Uh, I get that a lot from, you know, my patients that they say that, hey, I'm just, I, I have an active life, you know, uh, I do shopping, I you know I'm a farmer, I'm, I'm on my feet all day and blah, blah, blah. And I always 
have the same answer. All of them are not counted. None of them is counted. Now, what is cardiovascular exercise? What we are after uh, as your doctor, as uh, your practitioner, cardiovascular exercise is daily, dedicated daily time for your own exercise. How much you are on your feet, yes, you are active, but it is not good for your, uh, it is not beneficial, let's say, not beneficial for your heart or for your uh, lungs and for your vessels. What we are after here is uh, walking on a daily basis, 30 minutes to 45 minutes per day, in order to increase your heart rate somewhere above 100 to 120. That is the time you will start to huffing and puffing, and that's the time that that is beneficial for your heart and for your general well-being. That, that will also help you to lose some weight as well. Yes, you may think that I have hip issue, knee issue. I'm not able to walk. That's all right. Now that we are going towards summer, what we can do, we can uh, basically swim. Swimming is a very, very good alternative for walking. Uh, and that can be also helpful. And if you have some hip and knee issues, we also have very good physiotherapist here, which can, you know, guide you about the best exercises, uh, you know, available for your hip, knee, and what we can, you know, do for them to, you know, help you keep going. I hope this was helpful. And with diabetes, uh, there is actually a tool on uh, the net, which you can just Google that is Austere Risk that calculates your uh, diabetes, uh, you know, risk within next to uh, 12 months. And that can be helpful if you basically score higher, you need to see your doctor to do some blood tests and, uh, you know, uh, put you on some particular plans to uh, decrease the chance of developing diabetes. And uh, the other one is the cardiovascular risk assessment, which is uh, highly recommended for, uh, you know, this age group. And that is basically checking your blood pressure, cholesterol levels, a trace of your ECG, your smoking habit, your alcohol habits, and all of that. Uh, just to remember, uh, just a, you know, uh, note here is basically... Uh, remembering that all of these tools are sort of relative. They are not absolutely uh, accurate about the risks and all of that because they do not consider, you know, they may consider your uh, cholesterol levels, but they do not consider your family history, your waists, uh, size, and all of that. So they basically give us a rough idea uh, of the fact that uh, how that how how much is the risk or how high the risk is basically. Now, uh, let's move on. Next question comes from Tim. He is thirty-seven. He is experiencing lower back pain and wants to know about options for managing <coughs> or alleviating it. Now, lower back pain is very common particularly in our lifestyle that we sit a lot, we drive a lot, and we, don't, we usually don't have a good posture when we are sitting and we are uh, basically driving, usually. Uh, 
and that may cause uh, lower back pain. And as per the studies and the evidences available here, usually the lower back pain, there is not many reasons, there is no many reasons over there. And the main reason is basically the mechanical lower back pain. That means that it is mainly related to the muscle and the uh, <coughs> joints of the backbones over there, which they are a bit weak or they are uh, positioned, you know, wrongly, not exactly aligned to each other. So usually with the acute lower back pain, uh, depending on the severity and some symptoms which we have and we can determine either from patient or during the examination, we do all a management plan over there. So if it is acute and it doesn't have some concerning symptoms, like, for example, shooting to legs or uh, not being able to uh, control your bowel, your urine, or having localized tenderness or fever sometimes over there. So these are the uh, symptoms that are concerning. That is basically a suggestive of a nerve damage and that requires urgent review. However, that's not the case most of the times, and mainly that is a lower back pain related to some muscle issues or musculoskeletal issues, which uh, for the first, as per guidelines again, for the first couple of weeks, we prefer to monitor them. Just try to uh, go with conservative management, taking regular Panadol, uh, if required, some anti-inflammatory, some uh, like uh, some Nurofen, and uh, Voltaren sort of tablets or gels sometime, and uh, heat packs, regular physio, uh, physio, stretching exercises. So if it doesn't improve after uh, two to four weeks, our next step is x-ray, just to see that what we are dealing with, if there is any sort of uh, breaks of the bones or something like that or not, and then uh, we can take it from there. So all in all, back pain is very common, very, very common. And it is not a sort of, uh, it's not a condition that you can treat with one tablet or medication or something like that. That's a whole bunch of uh, thing that you need to do over there to alleviate this back pain. Uh, here I also discussed about medication, Panadol, Nurofen, etc. I just want to uh, add a note here. Uh, I have noticed that many people are taking Nurofen and they are taking Panadol or Paracetamol. So I want to explain here about Nurofen and Paracetamol. The Nurofen is very common. You can buy it from chemists, from supermarkets, and etc. And you need to remember that if you have high blood pressure, if you have kidney disease, Neurofen is can be a killer for you. So always, if you have any of these conditions, it is best to see your doctor first and then take it from there. And secondly, if you don't have any of these, then remember, if you want to take Neurofen, take it on uh, after meal or basically not on an empty stomach and take it with lots of water. So these are the two uh, important things which... I would like to tell you about Neurofen. All right. So I guess that's all uh, for now. Thanks for your questions. And, 
And that's all for today on talking with talking health with Dr. T. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for the questions. And uh, remember, your health is a priority, and I'm here to help. So tune in next time as we explore more of your health-related queries. Until then, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.